Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm Natalie Harpin. I wanted to talk briefly about some of the things that I had been hearing about in the local news about the vaccine and sort of the new Senate bill that's being proposed about reducing the age of consent for vaccines. So Senate Bill 866 is going to be in, well, was introduced by Senator Weiner from San Francisco. And in short, it would permit children age 12 and older to be vaccinated without their parents' consent or knowledge. And it's also important to note that this is just being proposed for California state. So I couldn't really find anything concrete as far as what the actual age of consent is for the COVID vaccine. And I think from what I'm getting, it looks like there are some things that are protected already that people that, you know, minors age 12 and older don't have to have consent or have their parents informed about. For example, they don't need a parent's consent to get the HPV vaccine, which is the human papilloma, papilloma, I think, virus, which um, can lead to cervical cancer and can be passed, you know, between sexual partners. And also, they don't need parents' consent to get hepatitis B vaccines. So it looks like it may just sort of be like certain things are allowed under that. It's not really like a blanket Um, bill or proposal that permits them to. And I think for COVID, they're just trying to make it so that children age 12 and older can get that vaccine specifically without having their parents' consent or knowledge. And the idea is that the pop-ups for these things would take place at the schools. That way the parents are not, um, you know, consciously aware that it's happening. So at first when I heard about this, to be honest, I was sort of taken aback because I thought, oh my gosh, right? That just seems, I mean, you know, 12 is just so young and it seems like something that to me, I was sort of wondering, well, what else might that lead to, right? Um, But then I think after a while and understanding that, you know, minors who are already 12 and older can get certain vaccines, then it sort of seemed less scary because I was not aware that they could already do that for things like HPV and hepatitis B. But I was also sort of worried about them taking place at the school because I was thinking about, you know, school nursing and how much of a strain that may or may not put on the nursing staff. And I was wondering, you know, who would be in charge of administering the exams and how they would make sure that the school faculty are sort of protected from any parents coming to them and saying, well, did you see my child, you know, walking into this office to get the shot or see their name on a list or something like that. So that's another part of what I heard, what I was thinking about, you know, having been a school support staff aide myself. Now, it's also important to note that minors age 12 and older can already make reproductive health care decisions for themselves. So in addition to the vaccines, I mentioned like HPV, the HPV vaccine and hepatitis B vaccines, they can also get information and get prescriptions for contraceptive and sexual health counseling at the age of 12 and older without having their parents' knowledge or consent. And I do remember that, and I want to um, also plug again my friend's page on Instagram at that public health chick. And 
I was thinking about how when I used to go visit in Keishi, who's the, you know, the owner of that page, hey girl. So when I used to go visit in Keishi at her job, she worked at a um, a community-based healthcare system. I'm not going to say the name, but it was in South Bay and I would go visit her on the job and it was near a high school. And I remember that especially every day when high school, when the high school got out, especially in even toward like the middle of the day where, you know, the kids don't have that last period or maybe they're leaving early on the minimum day, there would be a lot of kids in there. And she would tell me that a lot of the students were coming in and actually getting, you know, counseling for reproductive services, were asking questions about contraceptive and were getting prescriptions and then able to fill those prescriptions there at the same location. And one of the things she told me that they would always be worried about is if the clinic would ever call their house, right? If they had test results that they needed to get back or if they would ever send any literature or brochures or anything to their home. And because, you know, in their mind, that might tip their parents off as to their extracurricular activities, sexual extracurricular activities. And she would always inform them that, you know, no, it's illegal for them to do that. They'll never do that, that it's completely between them. And I think initially when I had heard about this age of consent for the COVID vaccine going down or I guess maybe not going down, but being um, instituted, my first thought was I could see it being like 15 or 16 years old, right? Because especially having had talks with Inkeishi about public health and about how a lot of these teenagers, you know, needed information about things that were a part of their lives, that they couldn't get that information at home or didn't have a safe space to get the information. Of course, I, you know, you would want a space for the 15, 16, 17 year olds to be able to go talk to healthcare professionals, talk to public health professionals and get information about reproductive health, sexual health, et cetera. So they can take care of themselves. I think initially what took me back about this was I was thinking, you know, 15 or 16, I could see that if they wanted to be able to get the COVID vaccine without having to have their parents know about it. That's the part I was kind of worried about the age of 12. So I'm fully willing to contend that I may be wrong, (laughs) that I could be thinking about it from a different point of view. I'm really interested to know what in case she thinks about this and I'll end up asking her about it myself. And maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe we'll be able to do a follow up, but I'm not really sure how I felt about the age of 12 necessarily for this. And again, not only just about the vaccine itself, because of course I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I have the vaccines. I've been boosted. I'm not trying to share any or spread anything like that. But what I am saying is that the age of 12 to be able to get it without their parents' knowledge or consent sort of took me aback because I could see it being maybe 15, but I was sort of concerned at the age of 12. So I guess how I could tie that in historically (laughs) for, um, you know, for the podcast also, since it is a history-based podcast, is that, you know, childhood is really a relatively new thing for the country. And the United States didn't really, you know, talk about this, like a childhood period, I would say, not until after, you know, in the post-World War II era, is when you really see a lot more push about you know, the importance of child development and having 
the having rules and systems set up for that child development. And really that's because for a lot of American history, children have been essential to capitalism. And when you think about work, especially very rural working class families, families who were newly immigrated, people who didn't have access to union wage jobs or union wage labor, they often had to have their children work factory jobs or other hard labor. So they weren't able to really go to school. And as such, there was no real concept of children, which is why, you know, Time Magazine did a really great archive where they, uh, I forgot what they call it, but they um, updated some old pictures in their archive and updated them for color so that you could see the colors that it likely would have been. And then, you know, they have photographs of children on their like lunch breaks or their meal breaks or whatever rest breaks at their job, their factory job, and they're smoking cigarettes, like children that look like they're like eight or nine years old. Or, you know, you have pictures of barefoot children who look like they're about six or seven who are working in a factory or at sewing machines. And it got me thinking, you know, that for today in the 21st century and even in the 20th century, the latter part, obviously, the much latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st century, you know, we wouldn't, we would be shocked, appalled, and concerned if we saw an eight-year-old smoking a cigarette, or if we saw a six-year-old working in a factory, much less barefoot without protective gear. And we have a lot of protections in place now that make it so that way children who do want to work at the age of, I think usually 15, I think it is for California, they can work, but you know, there's barriers. So they have to have a certain grade point average. They have to have parent consent and the employer has to let them out by a certain time um, during the week, right? When they have school the next day. So usually that would be like Monday through Thursday nights. They can't, I think the limit is 10 o'clock. They can't work past 10 o'clock because presumably they have to go, if they're in school, they have to be in school the next day and they have to have enough time to rest to do that. But that's relatively new. A lot of people did not have those protections when they were children. And for most of American history, there haven't been the different benchmarks of childhood. There hasn't been a reserved period of childhood. And like I was talking about working class people, which would have been like majority of the country and even today, majority of the population, um, they didn't get to finish school. So... I was thinking also about how that relates to what's going on now, where you have a lot of jobs who are advertising to much younger employees, potential employees. And I haven't seen it in San Diego as much, and maybe I'm in a part of town where it's not as prevalent, but I have seen pictures on social media where people were taking a photograph of a fast food restaurant or some other place, and they were advertising that, you know, you could work at the 14 years old and that, you know, they were trying to lure you in with a, um, a starting bonus or some sort of a promised wage. And it's interesting to me, I'm sort of wondering how that is all going to balance itself out as the pandemic continues, when the pandemic ends, hopefully, whenever that's going to be, how that is going to balance itself out with relying, with having to rely again on young workers to fill jobs to keep production going because we as a country have really gotten away from that you know you don't usually you do find young people in service 
capacity jobs, in retail capacity jobs, and in um, the food industry type jobs. But I've never seen them work so hard to advertise to like very young high schoolers. So 14 years old, for example. Um, I know a lot of times before you might see someone who was clearly, you know, maybe 16 or 17 working like at the movie theater or at a fast food place. But it's really interesting how we're in 2021 and there are a lot of similarities with what was going on even in the 1920s and the 19, you know, teens with regard to labor and how that was all working itself out with age and with unions. And even, you know, I did a podcast a couple weeks ago about unions and how you have increasingly less accessibility to union wage jobs. We have more people who are in the union who are protesting and advocating. And the UC lecturers just did that. The Teamsters for the Republic Trash Services in Chula Vista are currently doing that. You have a lot of people who are taking the opportunity to fight and demand better wages. And it's because, again, it's become so unsustainable that people who are working hard and are working full time are still unable to take care of their families the way that they can and the best way that they can. And a lot of that has to do with not having access to job security and a and access to a livable wage, especially as things go up. I was just talking to someone on Saturday about how about how high the cost of chicken was. And I was trying to find a pack of wings, you know, full disclosure, I was trying to find a pack of wings to make. And when I finally found a pack of wings, I ended up finding it at a Smart and Final location. And it was about $18 for just a family pack of wings, which is like 11 or 12 wings. And that's really expensive. That's a lot more than it would have been even a year ago or especially two years ago. And wages have not gone up, right? There are things that are, I think more people are able to stop and see that the costs of things have continued to increase, but the wage labor and the amount of money that people are making at their jobs is not increasing. And especially among people who perform necessary tasks, right? Or who perform jobs that are considered low skill, but are very, very important. And I say that with the air quotes, right? Low skill. Um, People who work in the food industry, people who pick up the sanitation like these things are looked at as sort of like oh you know people turn down their nose at jobs like this but they're hugely important they're very important for this um functioning of society right i know chula vista a lot of their trash wasn't getting picked up and so people and businesses are paying other trash collectors you know to come pick up their stuff or people are dumping their things at businesses or other people's um dumpsters because theirs is getting picked up and it's really interesting, even when you look at like a city or a county, like who's, you know, which companies are responsible for picking up the trash? How does it get funded, right? Like which parts belong to which location? And so when you have people, especially who don't have job security or they're not even being appreciated for doing that job, a lot of these people feel like, well, what's the incentive, right? Um, that's just, it's important stuff. So tying it back in with the kids, We'll see how all this 
sort of balances itself out as the pandemic continues and as it ends, hopefully, with regard to the types of jobs that children are available, well, the types of jobs that are available to them, and also the types of jobs that they are encouraged to apply for. But we'll also see, I'm sure, a lot of backlash about Senate Bill 866. So about the reduction of the age of consent for the COVID vaccine to 12 years old. Again, I want to say that one of the biggest things that I'm worried about is the school support staff. And I want to encourage um, anybody who listens to this who is a school support staff to make sure that you are um, protecting yourself. All right. I know that school staff do have a union, so there are some protections there. However, we know that, you know, support staff at schools, teachers in general are very unprotected in society with regard to their safety and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, how the state manages it. But I want to make sure that school support staff are supported in not being involved with the knowledge of knowing anybody, any children who are choosing to get this vaccine so that they can stay out of it and not potentially put a child at risk whose families may give backlash to them for doing so because that's a very real possibility. Um, Just like some parents give their children backlash for getting reproductive information, there are going to be people who are chastising their children for getting the vaccine. There are some people who believe these ridiculous conspiracies that if you are near somebody who has had the vaccine, that somehow that's going to disrupt your system, which doesn't make any sense. But a lot of people do believe that enough people believe it. And what we don't want to happen is for children to be potentially put in a situation where they have no stable housing because their family has decided that they having gotten the vaccine, it's going to affect the rest of them. So I think that we all need to be very aware of that and supportive where we can. If you can, please get involved in some sort of a mutual aid organization that may be, you know, doing outreach or collecting money or looking for housing options for these youth so that they can be continue to be protected and continue to have a safe, stable place to live in case their families do do anything drastic like that. So I'm going to go ahead and end this one off. This was really short today, but thanks for coming back for another episode. And we're almost through January. So the years are about to really begin. January is sort of that buffer month to me where it's like, eh, it's still 2021. (laughs) But I have a great rest of your day and I'll talk to you all later. Bye.